c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. and fabulous i'm jessica and i'm still janelle and today we are working on our to our second part of virginia hall the world war ii spy american but uh working for the british in france so that is yes and she had one leg which is the most important thing that i remember from the first half just the one 90 percent of what i remember from the first half <laughs> yeah, Janelle does not remember a single episode after they are recorded. She flushes this Flush. stuff right from her brain. I have a few. I, I can remember Maura Murray, who is like episode six, and everything in between that is kind of fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> My brain attic is full. <laughs> no, I flushed that shit immediately. I have limited fucking disk space up here. <laughs> and people will like text me quotes or send our one of our social media accounts like quotes from the show and they'll just give no context whatsoever they'll just start quoting me at us and i have no idea i don't recognize this shit at all i said it 48 hours ago it's gone so they're <laughs> just starting to like text me crazy things and i'm like right when i'm like getting ready to call in a fucking police wellness check i realize like oh i said that recording <laughs> That incredibly offensive thing you just texted to me with no context whatsoever was it's something so much I said. More horrifying when and then I'm like, down. do I need to apologize? And they're like, no, haha, it was hilarious. So great. Just <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Excellent. If you're gonna text me something that I said on the show because you think it was funny, open with that is basically the lesson here. <laughs> Contextualize. Because I don't know it. I don't know anything that I've ever said ever in any context at all. Uh, but to begin, in late June 1942, Virginia was, uh, Virginia, my, 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 my source tended to use everyone's first names, which you can imagine as a very formal person just pissed me right off. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you be on a first name basis with the great Ms. Hall. Fresh. It's Ms. Hall. Thank you. <laughs> We've known each other We've for like other five for like years. Five years. But if I was given any social permission, you would be J- Ms. Janelle Como. You'd be Ms. Como to me. Ooh. The fact that I call you Janelle is purely me bowing to social pressure. <laughs> See, I can tell how much my clients at work like me by how they address me. Some of my clients at work who really like me do call me Ms. Janelle or Ms. Como. The ones that don't like me call me this white bitch. So it's real. <laughs> It's, uh, Different levels really of formality in New York. It's all about tone. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only white bitch in the building, so I mean, it does get results. <laughs> uh, in late June 1942, Ms. Hall received a curt recall order from Baker Street in relation to an, interroga- uh, an interrogation of American Consul Marshal Vance by French police investigators who asked him if he knew Hall. Vance passed on to MI6 that Hull's operation was compromised. Hull viewed herself as singed rather than truly burnt, and knew that a return to London would likely be the end of her time as a frontline agent. 
Can you do that? Can you just be like, no, no, I identify as singed, not burnt. <laughs> Does that fly at the burn word? <laughs> I don't. I don't think that goes, especially not when you are burnt in the way that a spy can be burnt. Like I am all for self determination, but I don't think that that's how it works. <laughs> I. You're not gonna get that one past security. Did she identify as two-legged? Like, how how deep does this go? Uh, instead, Hall pretended poor weather conditions were behind the delay in her response and enlisted uh, Ben Cowburn in making the case to London that she simply couldn't be replaced. She then requested permission to attempt what all other SOE effort has had failed to achieve. The release of the 11 agents from the Villa de Bois disaster languishing in Vichy custody. <laughs> I like I like that she is faking weather conditions so that she can stay on what is effectively a suicide mission. <laughs> like I've called in sick from work because I'm itchy. Like this is not <laughs> No, this is this is not a, this is not a woman who like calls in sick when she's got a splinter. This is barely a woman who calls in sick when her leg falls off. Like <laughs> <laughs> They're like, do you want us to swap you out before you're killed by the enemy because you're compromised? And she's like, nah, fam, I'm good. It was just some heavy <laughs> wind. Hall asked the American ambassador to France, Admiral William Leahy, to advocate on behalf of the captured men on him humanitarian grounds. Through a diplomatic back channel, Leahy managed to get them transferred away from the horrifying conditions of the Perugeau prison to, to the far more humane internment camp at Mauzac. It would have been ideal to rescue the men mid-transfer. They were far too weak to run, given months of malnutrition. Uh, instead, Hall worked with the wife of one of the captured agent, G Gabby Bloch, who had been arrested alongside her husband and later released and was permitted to visit him in prison. Hall trained Bloch on how to find sympathetic contacts inside the camp and finance regu regular care packages delivered through both Bloch and the Red Cross. In return for a promise to be exfiltrated to join the Free French Resistance in London, one of the guards, Jose Sevilla, persuaded the camp commandant, or that are it's Jose Sevilla, Sevilla, but I'm assuming it's pronounced in the Spanish way, uh, he persuaded the camp commandant that the watchtower closest to the hut that held the agents, number five, shouldn't be manned at night due to its tendency to sway in the wind, which would make scaling the ladder up perilous in the dark. I I mean, I can't think of a more suspicious thing to say to somebody. Like, hey, you know this watchtower? The one that, like, watches over the prisoners that, like, we're definitely not trying to help escape. What if you just abandoned it at night? You know what, when visibility is the worst, and when it would be most important to have a guard up there. <laughs> I like because it's swaying. Like, is there only wind at nighttime? Is that is that how wind works? Is that how the rotation of the earth works? I'm, I'm pretty like sure. That, like, I'm pretty sure wind Virginia is darkness Hall, powered. Some point in her career, somebody told her, "Just when in doubt, blame shit on the weather," and she just <laughs> ran with it. She <laughs> blames everything on the weather. Full on. <laughs> Can't help it. Damn clouds. Act of God. He really do like, does like to do me a solid from time to time. <laughs> I, I also like the idea that she like weaponized care packages as an instrument of war. Like, this oh, is something she does that my repeatedly. parents sent me in college to make sure I was eating a wide variety of chocolate bars and occasionally having clean underwear. 
he's just like, no, what if we weaponize this to liberate political prisoners? I'm under the impression the excuse was that it was more dangerous in the dark because it was dark and there was wind. And that, like, if you fell off during windy, swaying conditions from an unstable tower in the daylight, that was your own damn fault. I mean, Virginia Hall must have been either the most charismatic or the most attractive woman in all of France. And she was a one-legged American who spoke French with a heavy accent. So I'm, I really am not seeing how any of this was possible. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I'm just like, did she give off pheromones? She just, like, hefts her wooden leg up on the table and, like, jerks back her pants showing off some wooden thigh. Like, what is this? <laughs> how is she doing this? Just some some saucy wooden gams. <laughs> Giving him a glimpse of oak ankle, like Oh boy. What <laughs> I have two perfectly normal ankles and I can't convince anybody to do anything. Huh. They don't even want to look at them. They're like, put your clothes back on. <laughs> you should Useless. wear two tights and hip waders at all times. Put those things away. Could you put on more pants? <laughs> like you to wear more pants. Just one of those, uh, like, floor-length Christian fundamentalist denim skirts at all times. The ones that make everyone look like an upholstered <laughs> sofa. Just put those on. I'm not comfortable unless you're covered in at least three layers of fabric. <laughs> Bloch was searched when delivering packages to her husband, but nonetheless managed to smuggle in a miniature metal file inside a jam jar, wire cutters inside fresh laundry, and a small hammer and screwdriver inside some, inside some hollowed books. So she was searched, but not well. <laughs> Clearly they were insufficiently <laughs> suspicious of this woman married to an, sorry, a French spy who was caught with him. They were insufficiently concerned about that. <laughs> she is but a mere woman. So this is this is not exactly a Guantanamo strip search. They just kind of like look at the books you're holding and they're like, "Yep, those sure do look like books." Right this way. Yeah, like it's kind of a notable fact that like a, one of the reasons why female f- spies were so effective during the early parts of World War II, but it was the the the, the German slogan was for for women was uh, "Church, children, and the kitchen," which is very wow. fun. That's incredibly insulting. Uh, yeah, and the sort of traditionalist views they had of women really stopped them from being appro- like putting female spies under appropriate scrutiny. I mean, in fairness, I think I could get away with this today. I'm blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and five foot two. I could like wander into the wrong part of my boyfriend's secured Manhattan skyscraper and just be like. I'm just, like, looking for my boyfriend as I steal corporate secrets. I'm pretty oh, sure I could do absolutely. that. <laughs> yeah, I I basically look like a toddler, so... You snuck literally past the customs desk into U.S. territory illegally. When did I do that? I you don't ended remember. up between two countries at an airport. I vividly remember this. Oh, yeah, but I didn't sneak <laughs> past. I just talked my way out. <laughs> Still, you you crossed out of and then back into Canada without a passport in post-9-11 world just by being kind of helpless looking. <laughs> like, yeah, just, like just puppyish eyes and an air of confusion. That is my best <laughs> weapon. 
<laughs> I got out of customs despite the fact that I slept my way across the border. I napped my way into international waters. Like, they didn't even hold me for an hour. <laughs> they let me go, like, right away. <laughs> I think if Virginia hauled your way through World War II, I, th- I think you could have pulled it off. I don't, I, I, I just look so innocent. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, because I got that round face. Even though I'm graying rapidly, I just look like a debonair baby. Are you graying at 29? I have been graying since 24, my dude. <laughs> it's the stress of dealing with your own choices. <laughs> uh, I've just, I've been, I've been stressed out since I was two years old. What do you expect? Of course I'm graying. <laughs> like, anxiety is just the background radiation of my universe. I was just like a two year old with existential dread and a firm grasp of interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just think there's something deep, gonna be deeply wrong with any child who at the age of eight is able to understand the concept of death. That's just. <laughs> all the intellectual capacity and none of the emotional maturity. <laughs> <laughs> Not me, I have no concept of death at age 27. I run on slippery train platforms. <laughs> You're not long for this world, you know. <laughs> Don't get attached. <laughs> but Georges Begay began crafting a key for the one of the one of the captured men, as you'll recall, or won't, Janelle, uh, began crafting a key for the barracks, using a piece of stale bread as a mold, while the other agents sang rude songs at an obnoxious volume to cover up the sound of hammering. <laughs> this is just such like a cartoon. Oh yeah, this is this, this is, is a Looney Tunes, Tunes logic. When we covered uh, when we covered uh, Alan Legere breaking out of prison with an antenna stuffed up his ass, I think that I think that made more sense than this. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I thought I just had one of my fits. Janelle, you know you're not supposed to talk about Alan Legere. <laughs> <laughs> he killed so many old ladies. <laughs> Jessica, Jessica, Jessica cannot hear the name of one of New Brunswick's most notorious serial killers without having an asthma attack from laughing. <laughs> not good, Jessica. I hope this doesn't come up get in my security screening. <laughs> this is then what will you do? Uh, but the imprisoned agents, known as the Cameron clan, uh, received several visits from an elderly French priest in a wheelchair who had lost his legs dur- from during the First World War. The priest, uh, as a means of listi- lifting their spirits, arranged for a few cans of paint for them to refresh their hut. Uh, after they had finished, the priest requested that they lift him up the steps into the barrack to see their work. Uh, inside, he said, I have a little present for you. But first post a sentry or two at the door and window. Now, look under my cassock. Uh, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> That's... Yeah, people get in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> yeah, rather than all the terrible things that it could have been, instead there was a fully functional radio. Uh, <laughs> are you getting molested or are you escaping the war? One of the two. 
Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, Begay was then able to contact London and even pass on some juicy intel about a nearby German munitions factory. The signals soon attracted the attention of uh, passing radar detection vans, but Begay correctly guessed that the police would never think to check inside the internment camp. <laughs> Can you just imagine? Just like, man, it's so weird that priest's ass has, like, radio reception. <laughs> You could just be like, you know what? That's my direct line to God. That's what that's that's what you're detecting. That's, that's, that is the signal of my prayers reaching the Almighty. <laughs> it's, it's that's why priests have to be male. The penis is just a straight antenna to Christ. <laughs> I mean, you could have a female priest, but it would get all it would get all fuzzy on the way over, and then your prayers wouldn't get answered properly. <laughs> oh. Going directly to hell, both of us. Who? <laughs> 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 Ooh. Ooh, boy. Uh, there were a few stumbles. Uh, the first iteration of the key failed to work, and a mess sergeant caught on to the plan, but turned a blind eye in return for a hefty bribe. But on July 15th, at four in the afternoon, the Camerons received their signal that Hull was ready. An old woman walking by the camp, three children in tow. That night, they drugged a fellow prisoner who had expressed concerns about their planned escape, while at the same time, Sevilla had a friend deliver two liters of wine to the guardroom and offered to split it with his supervisor around midnight. Drunken singing would be in the queue for another friendly guard in Watchtower 7 to signal the all-clear to the Camerons with his lighter. For reasons unknown, he never did. Instead, Sevilla snuck away from the impromptu drinking binge at 3 a.m., climbing the tower himself and lighting his pipe at the top. Begay quickly opened the doors to the barracks, disguising it with a patch of sackcloth painted to look like a closed door. The Camerons used a trestle table to hold a section of barbed wire apart and a carpet to allow them to crawl across it safely. They also used a string as a rudimentary alarm system. Three tugs for danger, one for an all-clear. The eleven Camerons, plus Sevilla, one by one, crawled through the fence to freedom. But just as the last few agents were to crawl through, a French guard came across them. He whispered, Is it the English? Which war is that guy fighting? <laughs> when Michael Tredebus answered, Yes, the guard continued, Well, don't say make, make so much noise, and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, there's so many double agents on both sides that who can fucking tell? It's like Swiss cheese. Wants. Except the Swiss <laughs> are the ones actually ferrying this stuff to the, to London. Good. Uh, Good. From the unlocking of the barrack door, the whole operation took a total of 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of anticlimactic, honestly. Yeah, that went weirdly smooth. But, like, I love the sackcloth painted to look like the door. Like, that is the... Like, I'm amazed nobody tried to run into it like the... Like, like Wile E. Coyote. It's like that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang scene where they... Maybe I'm aging both myself and my mother, but... Where they roll out that big tarp painted to look like a road. Like, this is... They actually <laughs> did that move on the Looney Tunes a bunch of times. Like, the fake painted door thing is just... Mwah. You don't expect that to work in real life. No. Uh, 
It was not until morning when a fellow prisoner, who had likewise relocked the door and thrown out the key, raised the alarm that the Camerons were mysteriously missing, leading to a massive, Hmm. frenzied manhunt. Uh, Gabby Bloch was arrested, but soon released due to an ironclad alibi. Rumors spread by Hall's network that the men had already been spirited out of the country, having been met by an RAF bomber in a field. In reality, they were hunkered down in a well-stocked safe house in the countryside, waiting until the search was called off and they could make their way to Lyon in small groups, where they would then be smuggled out of France by the predominantly Jewish-run underground known as the Vic Line, which helped escapees cross the eastern edge of the Pyrenees into Barcelona, Spain. Hall's recall order was rescinded. (laughs) The SOE also promoted the deeply incompetent Alain to the position of commander-in-chief, finally clarifying who was in charge in Lyon to the horror of their forces on the ground, though he was recalled for incompetence not long after. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) harsh. Woo! Promotion! Demotion! (laughs) Right, that was, like, like, kind of immediate. How do you get promoted and then demoted for incompetence so quickly? Yeah, it's like if you get promoted to manager, then immediately fired. (laughs) Right? Like, you're pretty much one of the only people left alive in France for this spy team, and you can't even fail upwards. Like, this is is a time and place where, like, radio operators have a three-month shelf life, and you cannot, you cannot hack it, even though you are, (laughs) you technically have a pulse. (laughs) They're not even willing to wait for you to die. (laughs) Like, Uh, you are too much of a danger to yourself and others. (laughs) Uh, Hull's success likewise encouraged the recruitment of 38 more female agents, their second after her to be sent to France in late 1942. These female operatives had a much higher uh, attrition rate than their male colleagues, largely due to taking on far more dangerous roles, such as wireless operators and couriers, which required them to frequently broadcast traceable messages or to pass repeatedly through police and military checkpoints with illicit materials, respectively. Ah, so they just brought them there to be female cannon fodder. Female members of the French Resistance were likewise high, at higher risk, as they were more likely to run safe houses, uh, requiring them to stay in one place. Around 20% of women who ran safe houses were eventually executed for their trouble. Oh. Uh, such a brazen and high-profile escape could not help but draw the attention of Abwehr counter-espionage and the Gestapo. To be noted, they did not work together on the case, instead competing as rivals. Both the Funkabwehr and the Gestapo placed surveillance on the American embassy in Lyon, though thanks to their greater access to SOE intel and codes following the incident with La Chatte, the Funkabwehr had further deduced that the Allied spy they now pursued was a woman, likely of of English or Canadian origin, and that she went by the name Marie Monin and walked with a distinctive limp, earning her the moniker... La Dame qui boit, the limping lady. Rather than arrest her immediately upon distinguishing her as their probable target, Sergeant Bleicher of the Funkabwehr, however, preferred to watch and wait in the hopes of confirming her identity and the nature of her contacts, perhaps even capturing a wireless transmitter which they could use to assume her identity and transmit false information back to London. 
This was during a time when the flimsy pretense of French autonomy was rapidly eroding, and German authorities engaged in the arrest and torture of French citizens without even pretending to be cooperating with local police. Most suspected that a full German takeover of southern France couldn't be far behind. The Gestapo, which for a secret police force lacked any real subtlety, pursued the mysterious SOE spy in Lyon with their usual tactics, which included maiming, sexual violation, and repeat drownings. How many times can you drown a person? <laughs> well, they used the bathtub method, which is a um, sort of a precursor to waterboarding. Ah, I was going to say, I thought that was kind of a one-time event, but apparently you can stretch it out. Yeah, like, you can, like, you only do it the once to completion. <laughs> like, you just, everything yeah. before that is foreplay. Oh my god, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> you should appreciate that I did not go into graphic detail of the nature of Gestapo torture methods. Because okay, this probably, is probably me too. censoring myself. <laughs> <laughs> we aren't explicit enough as a podcast. Yeah, there was a little vestigial Jiminy Cricket part of my brain that went, ah, oh, maybe not. Not the thing with the <laughs> nipples. Definitely not that. <laughs> Fair. Fair. We hail your restraint. The Gestapo's effort to capture Hall were led by Klaus Barbie, known at, later as the Butcher of Lyon, who liked to lead interrogation sessions personally. Okay, Klaus Barbie just sounds like an even gayer Ken. <laughs> like the toy. It's, Bar it's Barbie's weird German boyfriend who plays in a techno band. Like <laughs> Ken's like mysterious friend, quote unquote, who spends a lot of time wearing leather. Yeah, K Klaus Barbie <laughs> is an excellent name. There's been a lot of excellent names in this podcast, but that one's, mm. one's top-notch. Pretty good, pretty good. Awful person. Uh, yeah, terrible human being. On August 14th, three SOE agents were arrested by Inspector Morrill of the Sûreté Nationale. The first, Denny Rake, had been spotted due to being obviously ostentatiously nervous in a hotel lobby. When searched, 65,000 francs were found on his person, which he tried to explain away, claiming a monthly salary of 8,000 francs from his job as a shirt maker, which apparently the inspector found implausible. <laughs> uh, how would I know how much a 1942 French garment maker earns a month? I wouldn't know. <laughs> he, he probably can... should have picked something other than shirt maker. Yeah, just <laughs> anything else. Say you're a banker, dude. <laughs> Something. <laughs> it's like if in modern times you were caught with like $65,000 cash in your person and you're like, yeah, well, I work at Target. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got this from my paper route. Like, what? <laughs> uh, and it, it can be difficult to nail down exactly how much money was worth nearly 80 years ago during a war in which a currency that no longer exists fluctuated rapidly. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, It is hard to, to value currency that is, was phased out almost 20 years ago. But Yeah, uh, but in 1950, the minimum wage in Paris was set at 78 francs an hour, and I do not know if that helps. It doesn't. I can't. I cannot math. 
Yeah, <laughs> admittedly, 8,000 francs would be worth around 103 minimum wage man-hours in Paris nearly a decade later is not a particularly intuitive metric. But I had already been Googling the price of apples and loaves of bread for half an hour at that point. It's the best you're going to get. <laughs> Did you try to convert this into bread as a unit? I mean, I intuitively know how much bread is worth. <laughs> Do you know? I, yeah, it's about, like, if you're cheap, it's worth about worth a dollar and a half. And if if you care about nutrition, it's like three bucks. <laughs> also, is converting French currency into baguettes racist? <laughs> or is that just something all French school children are taught? <laughs> Possibly, but I didn't specifically say baguettes. <laughs> it could have been worth, I could have converted it into frog legs and champagne. <laughs> In fairness, I harass my French boyfriend all the time by being like, oh, wouldn't you like some baguettes? Bet you want some baguettes for breakfast. And his only response is over, like, yeah, actually, baguettes would be nice. So it's... it's <laughs> my attempts to be you xenophobic toward him. my partner are not going well. Uh, he's too confident in his own Frenchness. <laughs> God damn it. Huh. It's it's like every time somebody tries to make fun of me for being French, and then I'm like, oh, no. They're like, oh, I bet you're a coward. And I'm like, one, yes. <laughs> I don't want to fight anybody. But two, wrong type of French. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't flee, we were deported, goddammit. Wait, that's my type of French. Your type of French, I don't know. You you tried to leave Quebec and you couldn't even agree on it. My ty My type of French... Uh, hid in the woods quietly in small groups, then snuck into people's houses and murdered them while they slept. So <laughs> a little cowardly. It is a little. It's cowardly. a little cowardly, but not in the way you mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's not honorable by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's not. It's 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 really not. It's really not. <laughs> Uh, Rake was likewise carrying three ID cards, all issued in different towns, but all likewise bearing the same handwriting. <laughs> and when the next two agents arrived to meet him, they were likewise arrested and found carrying French bills with sequential serial numbers, a clear sign of counterfeiting. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, I'm not a Noob. spy, I just carry this disguise, fake ID, grappling hook, and large amounts of cash around with me at all times. It's <laughs> for my job as a pastry chef. <laughs> yeah, like, how do you try to bang off the three different IDs all by the same, same mysterious town-jumping clerk? <laughs> Rake, incidentally, was generally a good agent despite his inability to look calm or lie convincingly under pressure, but more importantly, his life was fascinating. Uh, my primary source, Sophia Purnell's A Woman of No Importance, describes Rake as a pudgy, bespectacled 40-year-old music hall artiste who had been brought up in a circus as a child tumbler when his opera-singing mother abandoned him at the age of three. During the First World War, he wound up in German-occupied Brussels, uh, assisting nurse Edith Cavell, known for providing medical aid to all regardless of allegiance, and helping around 200 Allied soldiers to escape the country, for which she was charged with treason and executed. Uh, in his youth, Rake spent some time as the kept man of an Athenian prince, who broke it off for fear of scandal. 
Uh, he was likewise terrified of explosions, guns, and parachutes, and intended to mutter the words, Pull yourself together, ducky, to himself in difficult moments. <laughs> I will never be half as interesting as this man. <laughs> oh, I was so worried when they first described him. I'm like, oh, he doesn't seem to be particularly plot relevant. Dang it. Because, uh, like, the worst thing that could have possibly happened in this entire thing was not getting to explain this dude to you. <laughs> <laughs> the former gay lover of a prince who just constantly chastised himself. Get it together, Ducky. Get it together! Um, he was very gay. Uh, I could go fight crime in the streets of New York right now with a mask on, and I'd be not even half as interesting as that guy. Uh, upon arrival at the police station, it was determined that the three men were British spies rather than German ones, and Inspector Morrill and his colleagues kindly destroyed the fake money and flushed Rake's extra IDs down the toilet. Uh, however, their boss, Commissaire Guth, uh, normally entirely accommodating to Hall's requests, was unusually recalcitrant to release them, as the Gestapo had threatened his family should he happen to lose any more prisoners. Uh, hmm. Hall attempted to have them released through another ploy by arranging a gang to ambush the guards as the SOE agents were transferred with the help of Marcel uh, Lecce, a subordinate of Guth, who alongside Elise Allard affectionately referred to Hall as their beloved auntie. But Guth scuttled that plan, too, through ordering a far larger guard detail for the transfer. Another agent, Olive, responsible for resistance networks in the French Riviera, was arrested on August 18th, after a new courier, a clerk for the Swift Consulate in Marseille, was caught carrying microfilms of Sicilian coastal defenses over the border to Switzerland and gave up Olive's name under torture. Hull's network, too, had been infiltrated, primarily by a young priest who went by Alesh, and claimed to be a courier for the, from the MI6-linked WOL circuit in Paris. In reality, he was an Abwehr spy working for Bleicher, who had used his position as a priest to gain the trust of local youths involved with the resistance, before volunteering to act as a courier for them. After Alesh made contact with Hall's ring, a mass arrest of the WOL circuit began, many members never to be seen again. While Alesh, codenamed Bishop, had several red flags, notably his failure to report the arrest in Paris, inability to accurately describe a key member in the WOL ring, and tendency to ask for money like a cousin with a coke habit, neither Hall nor the SOE was able to find anything definite. In light of the apparently high-quality material he could supply, they ignored the warning signs. Everybody in this entire story ignores all the most obvious warning signs. Like, hey, you want to leave your guard tower unguarded? Sure. Hey, you can't describe any of your secret contacts, uh, and you just ask us for money all the time, but you seem legit. <laughs> like, this, this did not come across as trustworthy. Necessarily. <laughs> right. right, what's the password? No idea, but do you have a 20? <laughs> <laughs> and in truth, the apparently good material Bishop brought them had been first carefully edited by the Abwehr to neutralize its strategic usefulness. You should be suspicious of any supposedly underfinanced agent able to get you such high-quality materials. Like, they have resources. <laughs> they just- they literally just work for the government. They just printed it off the printer. 
<laughs> like this is this was this this material was not created in the it, with a tiny makeshift printer in the basement of a winery. <laughs> this was created by a professional. It's it's just a real passport printed off with the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, they just put it in with the regular batch. <laughs> Sensing danger, particularly in the way that crowds of strangers in the streets seem to have too many repeat faces, on September 21st, Hall requested a flight from Lisbon so that she could arrange for the visas she'd need to move out of the country on short notice under her official cover as an American journalist. She likewise moved once more, this time to a six-story walk-up with a broken elevator. And she has one leg. Oh yeah, that sounds fun. I have two legs, and I consider living on a fourth-floor walk-up to be my own personal Vietnam. (laughs) I'm on the third floor, and I take the elevator. (laughs) So, (laughs) my asthmatic ass would be dead. (laughs) Like, I'd have to have a roommate... Willing to send out a search party if I didn't come home. <laughs> well, you'd need to get one of those, like... Actually, you'd need six of those, like, old lady chairs that lift you up the stairs. <laughs> those ones you put where, like, grandma isn't willing to move to a home, but she also can't do the stairs anymore. So you just get her those incredibly slow <laughs> chair seat. She's got hips like a poorly bred show dog. Just... <laughs> Uh, on October 24th, another of Hall's protégés, Brian Stonehouse, a radio operator and former fashion illustrator codenamed Celestin, had just finished a marathon 48 hours of broadcasting, taking over the slack due to a shortage of other operators. His nest in the attics of the Urlevant Chateau was raided by the Gestapo, and a decoded message found on his person led directly to Gautier, the third and thus thus far only unarrested Vame Cool brother after Sylvain and Constantin. Uh, Gautier had been one of the greatest critics of Virginia's over-concern for the security of wireless operators and had included an obvious hint in the message as to his true identity and the legit address of an associate. I, I just like that this is a job that has a three-month life expectancy. Like, on average, they are killed within... 90 days of arriving oh, on the Oh, they have the lifespan like, of gnats. Typical woman, concerned about their safety. It's Don't nothing. be such a nanny. You are but a mere weak woman, worrying about nothing. Here's our physical address. Let's put it on the radio. Hooray! Said associate broke under questioning, leading to Gautier's own arrest. Uh, Celestin, however, refused to give up Hall. Now, decidedly nervous, Hall continued putting together the final details on her plan to ensure the release of Rake and the other SOE men, now including Celestin from imprisonment. Specifically, a fake prison transfer involving a stolen vehicle resembling a German staff car, an SS driver's uniform, two gendarmes willing to defect, and two men dressed as plainclothes Gestapo. Her point men on the project were Henry and Alfred Newton, a pair of acrobat brothers known as the Twins, despite being born nine years apart. Apparently, what a big problem they had, the reason why they had to get actual gendarmes, is they had problems sourcing gendarme uniforms for the uh, the Newton brothers, because they were way too ripped. <laughs> <laughs> they just flex and bust right out of the sleeves. 
I mean, I don't know. It might be it might be great for getting what you want if you just muscle your way. Oh yeah, just flex your peck and there's a shredding sound of I'd give you what you wanted. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's my visa right here. <sighs> uh, on November 7th, the American consulate informed Hall of Operation Torch, the imminent American invasion of the Vichy-controlled French colonies in northern Africa. This would undoubtedly provoke a backlash in southern France as the Germans moved to secure full control of the French mainland, the facade of French self-rule having lived out its usefulness. Hall began putting her affair in France in order, preparing to leave and to do her best by those left behind, including a last meeting with the commandant of the Montluc prison, where Olive was held to ensure his release. The next day, in the early morning of November 8th, the invasion of Africa began. That morning, Hall attended to a few last-minute vital errands, and ran into a former member of the French security service, the Deuxième Bureau, uh, who advised her to leave immediately. Hall nonetheless waited a while longer at her apartment, holding for two meetings, one with the twins, neither of which her contacts showed up at. At 9pm, she sought out the (laughs) former Deuxième Bureau agent once more to ask for further news, but he only begged her to leave, as an Axis advance guard would be descending on Lyon between midnight and morning. Hall returned one last time to her apartment, packed a bag of money and clothes, and walked the two miles to the train station, where she caught the last train south at 11pm, bound for Perpignan, 300 miles away, near the Pyrenees Mountains and the border with Spain. I like that her like last act as like a French spy is like to set up a bunch of meetings nobody comes to. <laughs> right? She's like, God Just, damn it, oh, I made all these finger sandwiches I vacuumed, and you don't even have the decency <laughs> to show up because you're in a fucking labor camp. How dare you? <laughs> she was a spy first, but a hostess second. <laughs> <laughs> I had to carry all these hors d'oeuvres up six flights of stairs on one leg, and you ingrates don't even show up. Honestly, though, they probably weren't even captured. They were probably just like, fuck that. I'm not walking up six flights of stairs. Oh, they were probably just winded on the f- the fourth story landing. <laughs> they had to just turn like, back. She'll wait, don't worry about it. Oh. Like it's Everest Think and you don't have enough puke. oxygen to reach the summit. Like, <laughs> it's not worth the risk. There's like a Sherpa trying to get them up and just... <laughs> They're just like, why don't we take a picture here? It's almost just as impressive. <laughs> just leave. <laughs> like, this, is, this has been more than enough. If you don't want us to see you, fine. <laughs> Listen, I'm happy to risk my life for my country, but not if it involves more than two consecutive flights of stairs. <laughs> that is the point at which my loyalty is tested. Uh, you want me to give my life for my country? You better have some goddamn escalators. If any nation can s- secure my my cooper- my collaboration if they give me an elevator. Just <laughs> holy. <laughs> my loyalty is not cheap. <laughs> In Perpignan, uh, Hall met a contact to arrange secret passage over the mountains. A difficult proposition at the best of times, never mind during the winter with authorities on high alert. So she decided to just sound of music her way out like a Von Trapp child? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Full she just on. went I don't over think the mountains singing, with her though. suitcase? Mm-hmm. Singing, how do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> Is that... 
These are a few of my favorite things. Throws her leg out the window. (laughs) (laughs) The hills are alive with the sound of treason. (laughs) That's... I, I didn't... I, I mean, the, the Von Trapp family, spoiler alert, did not actually climb over the Alps with instruments. They just got on a train. So I thought that the whole thing was fake, that nobody escaped over the mountains. But apparently I stand fucking corrected. Oh, yeah. Uh, the rate of pay would be steep, indeed, in order to for a passer mountain guide to take the risk. Hall would likewise have to join two men who had been waiting to make the crossing at a cost of 20,000 francs a head. The two men didn't yet have the funds, and so, according to her contact, she would have to wait. See, when that guy said he was a bank, or when he said he was a, a shirt maker, he should have said he was a treason Sherpa. That's a job <laughs> that pays. Smuggling people over the mountains is apparently quite lucrative. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? Uh, you just hide a Jew underneath your skirt and head, head for Spain. You're gonna make you have money back in no time. <laughs> Hull proposed instead that she pay 55,000 francs to cover all three of them, to avoid any delay. She did not inform him of her false leg, nicknamed Cuthbert, as that would have destroyed any chance she had of finding a guide willing to take her. (laughs) I mean, they get paid whether you die on the way or not. Yeah, but none of them would have been willing to risk it. If they get caught, you get caught. I guess, uh... Mountainous escapes or <laughs> escaping the Nazis is not handicap accessible. Who knew? <laughs> Decidedly not. Uh, and there was plenty of stories even then of passers simply abandoning people who could not keep up. Oof. Uh, November tenth, the German Al- Italian armies invaded Vichy France. It would only be a matter of time before they re- reached the Perpignan. Despite Leon's almost absurd density of Gestapo and SS officers, Klaus Barbie found himself frustrated in his search for Marie Monin, the limping lady, and apparently spent some time stroking his cat and screaming about getting his hands on that limping Canadian bitch. Like some kind of (laughs) fucked up edgy take on Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. (laughs) You know, Canadians abroad get mistaken for Americans all the time. It's not often that, like... An American gets mistaken for a Canadian. It's kind of like that old it's, saying when it's you hear nice. hoof, when you hear hoofbeats, you think horse, not zebra. It's not often that you hear an American accent and think definitely Canadian. Like it's interesting. Oh yeah, like I'm under the impression they really couldn't tell the difference, and that they assumed because she was working with the British that she must be Canadian. I guess, or she's just like on the air going like, "I sure do love universal health care and poutine." <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, you know, those, they, those French, they get uppity, but like, oh, they're they're cute, really. <laughs> <laughs> I like that she has a Wisconsin accent, and that makes her Canadian. <laughs> I actually don't know how to do an impression of an American impersonating a Canadian. I find it difficult. It's just, it's it's just a Bob and Doug McKenzie sketch. They think that that's a documentary. It is genuinely amazing that their understanding of the Canadian accent is almost exclusively made up by two dudes in a shed. Yeah, I've had to explain this to numerous Americans. Most of the things you associate with Canadian stereotypes, including the word hoser and ending sentences with A, is from, like, the Canadian equivalent of an SNL sketch done by Rick Moranis in the 1980s. 
<laughs> yes, that's entirely what you know about us, and you don't even remember the dude in question. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> like, like I've I've done a lot of comedy in Canada nowadays, and every time an American headliner comes up, not only do they tell us the exact three same jokes, they're like, "You've got health care," and we're like. Yeah, fucker, we know. It's not politically relevant up here. <laughs> we don't care. Like, they're always telling us... It's like they don't think we know anything about them. Like, like they, they assume the weirdest shit, but then they're also like, Do you guys have Starbucks? And we're like, yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we don't leave the poor to die on ice flows. What else is new? Yeah, it's just, they're always making jokes from the perspective of an American making a joke about Canadians, not like they're talking to us. (laughs) We're more similar than we are different. We, too, love junk food, obesity, and driving everywhere instead of walking. We're much closer to Americans than we are to the Europeans. (laughs) I'm just like, I I understand we're foreigners, but we're not that foreign. (laughs) (laughs) Barbie ordered the country plastered in thousands of wanted posters bearing Hall's image, declaring her the enemy's most dangerous spy. The night of November 11th, uh, Hall's passeur arrived in a van, which she climbed inside, handing him half the money, the other half to be paid when she was delivered to Spain. The party then drove to Villefranche de Conflans, from which they would leave on foot a grueling 5,000-foot ascent through deep snow after months on starvation rations. All the while, Hall struggled to disguise her limp to keep up with the men despite the way her stump had begun to bleed and the false leg was beginning to come apart at the rivets under the strain. I've got to be honest, this just sounds like what my dad describes as his daily commute to school as a child. (laughs) (laughs) 5,000... Feet uphill. Both ways. Both ways. In waist-high snow. And I had one leg back then. (laughs) All I had in my lunch was a single bologna sandwich, and you had to reuse the bag. (laughs) (laughs) This just sounds like my dad describing the fictional hardships of his life in 1960s New Brunswick. (laughs) At the Monte Pass at 6,000 feet... When they stopped to rest, Hall sent a message to London via radio. Cuthbert is being tiresome, but I can cope. The officer on the other end misunderstood and replied, If Cuthbert is tiresome, have him eliminated. (laughs) Just assassinate your own prosthetic, it's fine. (laughs) I also like that the first response to, This guy's kind of annoying, is shoot him. (laughs) Kill him. (laughs) That's what I love about this story, because it seems like all throughout the story, everybody's just murdering everybody for no reason. But then they have pretty much, they're 95% sure that she's an American spy. And they just hold out for that last 5% certainty, and she gets away. Oh, absolutely. It's just, like, the one person you should have immediately killed. (laughs) Everyone else is getting, like, shot on sight for just sort of, like, looking American. And she just... She, they're like, well, we do know that it is a, an accented foreigner with a fake leg, and we do have an accented foreigner with a fake leg right in front of us, but it could be a coincidence. 
Like, there's so many in Lyon these days. It's like if you're a French peasant who breathes out of the wrong nostril, you'll be deemed unpatriotic and murdered in the street. But, like, yeah, sure. Tall American woman with, like, a weird walk. Sounds legit. (laughs) Right? What's going on in Lyon? They're just like, there's just... We just can't be sure. They're just... There's so many of them. Uh, On the 13th, the party made an even steeper climb to 8,000 feet, reaching the top of the path, where Hall gave the pastor the rest of his pay, and she and the other two men descended towards Spain, fearing falling with every step due to the rigidity of her false ankle and her rapidly deteriorating leg. Early in the morning, they reached the train station in San Juan, knowing that they would be safe as soon as they boarded when the, boarded when the Spanish Civil Guard mounted the, mounted the platform, singled them out for their obvious exhaustion and filth, and arrested them. <laughs> Is being exceptionally dirty on a Spanish train illegal? <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> apparently in 1942 Jeez, it was. Just like, come on, man! It's the only like it's it's like if you were arrested for being a bit weird on the Greyhound, to be honest. <laughs> right? It's like that just kind of comes with the territory. <laughs> it's like if you're not muttering to yourself on the back uh, on the on the back seat, then why are you here? That's actually more <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> if you don't have like an open facial sore on a Greyhound bus, you're probably a cop. <laughs> Oh, you're definitely a cop. If you don't, if, if you also don't have stubble, you're probably fed. <laughs> you're definitely RCMP. Meanwhile, in Lyon, the Newton brothers had returned, returned on the 11th, where they were told by the concierge at Hall's building that she had left in a hurry. As they too left, a priest claiming the code name Bishop approached them and asked where Marie was. They spoke with him only a short while and left, finding him nervous, entitled, and over-insistent. For all the German invasion had spoiled the Newtons' plan to rescue Rake and the others, it likewise rendered it unnecessary, as they had recently been transferred to a POW camp with a sympathetic commandant who released them rather than let them fall into Nazi hands. That's literally, you have literally one job as the commandant of a... POW camp. He's just like, aw, that seems mean. You can go. You gotta just gotta keep prisoners. This isn't hard. <laughs> it's like if I got to work every day and I was like, aw, you've earned this heroin. Just do it openly in the halls. Before dawn on the 13th, Dr. Rousset's clinic was raided and Rousset himself arrested by the Gestapo, who brutally interrogated him, though he refused to give up any information about Hall. In fact, neither he nor anyone else knew her location, as she had told no one. Bishop discovered Germain Guerin through harassment of Rousset's housekeeper, then quickly integrated himself into her circle. While the brothers Newton had warned Guerin about him, in the vacuum left by Hall's disappearance and Rousset's arrest, Guerin was destabilized and too quick to trust Bishop's manipulation and easy charm. When the Gestapo came for Guerin and the Newtons, she sacrificed herself to arrest rather than allow them to be captured. Aww. After her arrest, Bishop continued exploiting her circles, rooting out more and more of her contacts while raiding her possessions and taking money from acquaintances under the guise of wanting to help her, while diverting these well-wishing donations for his own enrichment. Dude's dick. (laughs) Such an asshole. 
<laughs> the Newtons played a cat and mouse game with the Gestapo for some time, while occasionally blowing up radar vans, until they too were captured and viciously beaten. Oh, you know, just every now and then, we just blow up the odd radar van, just for fun. Just this is a day in the life! Uh, I always kind of imagine them looking a bit like Mario and Luigi, but just fucking ripped. <laughs> <laughs> Are those, like, the only brothers you can think of? <laughs> just I don't know, man. It's just, like, they're very different brothers. People kind of refer to them as if they were twins, but, like, they're clearly not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a me, a spy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to break you out of prison. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> one by one, the cells in Hall's Heckler network went down. Resistors met with mass arrest, torture, and humiliation. Likewise, however, the occupation of southern France put yet greater strain on the Germans' overstretched resources and further turned public sentiment there against them. On the 27th of November, shortly before the full victory of Germany over Vichy France, the French na- a navy destroyed its own fleet rather than let it fall into the hands of the Reich. Over the next year, mass civil disobedience against the seizure of French citizens as slave labor meant that tens of thousands of working-age French men simply disappeared to live in bands in the wilderness, known as the Maquis, often engaging Vichy and German authorities in guerrilla skirmishes. <laughs> Disappear into the woods, fight Nazis. <laughs> I, I understand that World War II was devastating and that at the time it was like on the technological cutting edge and it was a it was a new form of warfare. But it just sounds like children fighting in a playground. Like let's hide in the woods, yeah. <laughs> it's like they can't make us go to bed at seven. I don't wanna take a nap. <laughs> let's have secret code names. Let's smuggle this guy cake till he's fat enough to walk. Like <laughs> let's pay a guy to just carry us over the mountain. Like what is any of this? It's It sounds like a character-building scout camp where they send you after you've been expelled too many times. Like, it sounds like wilderness adventure camp. If these were ten-year-olds, it'd be charming. If six million Jews hadn't been massacred, you know. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like a good time. It would have been that. all a good fun. <laughs> other than the human rights atrocities, it just sort of sounds like some... Like a, like a grand adventure. Likewise, remaining cells undertook a massive sabotage campaign, blowing up factories and infrastructure and hobbling German industry in France. While the crackdown was brutal, resistance sentiment was too strong to ever be fully rooted out. After her capture, Hall was placed in poor conditions among other women in a prison in Spain. Despite her cover as an American journalist... If the Amer- Germans managed to track her down, the fascist Sp- Spanish government would be only too happy to hand her over. It was only a few weeks later that she found her chance to escape, however, by giving a letter to a fellow inmate, a Catalan prostitute, for Nicholas Buddington with a coded message detailing her location. American diplomatic intercession quickly secure- secured her release. Hall contacted the SOE shortly thereafter, and likewise requested that they lend aid to the two men with whom she had crossed the Pyrenees, now languishing in a Spanish concentration camp. Uh, Administrative delays and the need for discretion delayed her return, but she arrived back in England on January 19th, 1943, via flight from Lisbon. Hall felt a great deal of guilt for her failure in spotting Bishop, and further for her own escape. 
However, at this point, she was burnt beyond recovery, and any return to France would be nothing but a death sentence were it ever allowed. Therefore, when Hall returned to action that March, it was instead undercover as a correspondent for the Chicago Times in Madrid, where she turned her hand to arranging a soft landing for others escaping over the French border. Nonetheless, <laughs> a pleasant life in relative, of relative ease in Spain began to chafe. So in December, she returned to London, where in the new year she took SOE training as a radio operator, which she paid for personally. Does she just catch fire if she's not, like, currently moving countries in order to do something dangerous? Like, will she just <laughs> combust if she's happy? It's like that movie where if the bus goes below 50 miles an hour, it explodes. Like, that's just her life. It was in London that she was likewise recruited by the nascent American Office of Strategic Services, a precursor to the CIA that was yet largely staffed by unseasoned, unseasoned dilettantes in the literal cutthroat world of international espionage and needed the kind of on-the-ground experience that an agent like Hall represented, burned or no. Indeed, OSS seemed unaware that SOE had banned her from returning to France, which is probably why she made landing in France in the French province of Brittany in March 1944 alongside an inexperienced and talkative 62-year-old painter codenamed Aramis, who was officially supposed to be her superior. <laughs> so, she already knows that she's a wanted woman in France. They are looking oh, yeah. for somebody with an American accent and one leg, which really narrows the pool. And she decides, yeah, I'm going that back narrows it down with a geriatric painter who has no espionage experience. <laughs> yeah, he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> It'll be fine. She literally hopped allegiances for the express purpose of getting around a ban that was supposed to save her life. <laughs> she just <laughs> escaped over a mountain with one leg, and she is back. Uh, Hall went by the name Marcel Montagne and traveled under the guise of an elderly peasant woman having dyed her hair gray, used makeup to give herself wrinkles, and layered blouses and skirts to disguise her figure, and a Colt 32. I was a theater kid for years. I've never seen drawn-on wrinkles that were convincing from less than five feet away. <laughs> oh no, absolutely not. Uh, apparently she, was, she worked with some Hollywood uh, makeup artists specifically for this purpose, though. Um, oh, interesting. Good, good. All right. She had even had her teeth ground down by a dentist in London, though she declined more extensive surgical alteration. Seems like it would have been easier to just not go back to France, but, you know, what do I know? Uh, who am I to judge? I've never been even the once. <laughs> Virginia Hall never saw a grain thresher she didn't want to dance on, apparently, so... She's just lucky she didn't fall into a wood chipper because it said keep out, and she was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I, I now must point to a little curiosity that I have of ye I have as of yet failed to fully unravel. Uh, even after over a year in the country, German authorities still had a great deal of interest in Hall, continuing to collect what intelligence they could, and had given her the code name Artemis, after the Greek goddess of the hunt. Oh, that's kind of badass. Honestly, like, why would you give your greatest enemy a name that cool? <laughs> Right? If you give that nickname to yourself, it's not as cool. But when your worst enemy decides to nickname you Artemis, that's some sweet shit. I mean, Artemis? That's not even negative. That's just cool. <laughs> that's just cool. 
Now, the OSS, on the other hand, gave her the code name Diane. And depending on how well up you are on your classical mythology, this will probably remind you of Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt. Uh, no explanation is given for this odd similarity, and it could just be a coincidence, but if the OSS was aware of the German codename, then no classically educated member of the upper class, who still constituted a large proportion of the military, of military and intelligence services at the time, could possibly fail to make the connection. This is the nerdiest quibble you've ever had with anything. I don't know what this is about. Janelle, back me up here. It's weird. It is It is weird. It is weird. It is weird. Like, that's such a strange thing to be a coincidence. She was likewise given, finally given a military rank, that of second lieutenant, a junior officer. What? Yeah. Rip off. <laughs> Don't settle for anything other than three-star general. I want to be an admiral. I know I'm not in the <laughs> navy, but give it to me. It's like she she never went near a boat, but all right. And neither should you. You absolutely are a hazard to both the ship and marine life. I want to be a rear admiral. That sounds like a gay euphemism. <laughs> I'm taking a dinghy and I'm launching myself at France. <laughs> from from Vancouver. That's <laughs> I'll get there eventually, Janelle. I mean, they made the Panama Canal to make it easier for you, but I don't know that you can take a rubber dinghy through that. Uh, it's, it's a good way of getting around customs. I think if you manage to make it around the tip of South America and all the way to France in a dinghy, they, you get citizenship to whatever country you land in. <laughs> you know like those meals that are so big that if you eat them, you get them for free? I think that if you make your way to another continent across the Atlantic o Ocean, you just get to stay. <laughs> <laughs> that's the rules. Yeah. I'm, pre I'm pretty sure that's what America was founded on. <laughs> <laughs> if you can hang glide across the Atlantic on a giant paraglider made out of nothing but Walmart shopping bags, you get U.S. citizenship. That's just how it goes. Yeah. That's the real key to getting a green card. <laughs> <laughs> Creative border aversion. Trust us, we're experts. <laughs> Hall's official assignment was to gain was to identify safe houses for other agents south of Paris, dangerous due to central France's status as a li relative and often quite literal dead zone in allied intelligence. Not to mention the bloody infighting between German forces and the insurgent French resistance. She went quite a bit further, however, at rec recruiting locals and organizing them into guerrilla units. She likewise gathered military intelligence, including selling cheese and produce to German troops and listening into their conversations, giving no sign she understood. Ah, it is I, the elderly, one-legged cheese merchant. <laughs> no need to be alarmed. I am merely an elderly cheesemonger, here to mong you some cheese. <laughs> Nonetheless, Hall initially struggled to disguise her accent, a non-issue during her original cover as an American journalist, drawing too much attention and forcing her to move from her initial base of operations. She therefore recruited Aramis's landlady, a discreet French woman named Madame Rabou, to do the talking when they were in public. With the coming Allied invasion of France, 
Hull's orders were upgraded to assessing the capacity and needs of the resistance and, and preparing them to perform hit-and-run attacks and sabotage communications. Hull relocated to Nieve, a dangerous but strategically important region whose local resistors had fallen to disarray and infighting following the capture and death of their leader, Jean Moulin. There, she and Madame Gabou were met by Colonel Vesserot, retired gendarmerie chief and resistance leader who had been recruiting a small army in Cosne-sur-Loire of around a hundred men, but with few supplies and aught but pitchforks and brooms to arm it with. With her transmitter and pull in London, Hull could easily change that. Hall set to training the men with it in the art of sabotage, with Vesserot as her second and arranged drops of ammunition, guns, and explosives. She asked for Rabou to act as her courier, but instructed her not to advise Aramis of their new loca location, cutting him off as a weak link and essentially abandoning him without means of communicating with base in London. <laughs> She's just like, fuck it, I can do it myself. Just abandoning an elderly man in the middle of a war zone. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> You'll survive, or you won't. I don't care. <laughs> Soon enough, however, due to arrests of fellow agents with known connections to her, including Lecce and Alar, her dear surrogate nephews from Lyon, she was forced to move on again, arranging another agent to parachute in to continue the training of the Cosna resistance. She told none but Vesero of her next location and communicated with him by courier further training instructions. Tensions were high throughout the French countryside, with neighbor reporting on neighbor, masses of new resistance recruits filled with double agents, and radio detection vans combing the streets. Every night, Hall turned, tuned into the French service of the BBC, waiting for the hidden signal in the invasion was at hand. Finally, on June 5th, the signal came, with the BBC announcer reading out the words that Hall had been waiting for. Blessé mon cœur de longueur monotone. Wound my heart with a monotone, la monotone languor. What followed were 300 action messages instructing resistance cells to begin their pre-planned attacks on roads, bridges, railways, and telephone lines, hamstringing German movement and communications in France. Hall was constantly on the move, often by bicycle due to paucity of other vehicles, assessing resistant cells' capacity and arranging supply drops as order broke down and the streets descended into violence and chaos. A resistance leader to the north, Colonel Colum, his men suffering from lack of supplies, was frustrated by his inability to contact the mysterious radio operator named Diane with her clear authority in London due to her stringent security measures. So he reached out to an old friend who had broken out of prison, Philippe de Vomécourt once known as Gautier, but now working under the code name Antoine. Antoine immediately guessed who Diane must be and sent her a message. I salute you from one of three brothers, which one? Hall, knowing Sylvain and Constantin were, had been deported, responded, I salute you also from, from Marie to Gautier. On June 13th, Colomb and Antoine met with Hall in the depth of, depth of night in the woods this time with a great deal more respect paid by Monsieur Vomécourt. Hall, dressed as herself rather than Madame Marcel, confirmed to her satisfaction that Colomb was trustworthy and his intentions good, then she signaled London to arrange his supplies, ammunition, guns, explosives, 
and 435,000 francs, all to arrive within the space of five days. I just, I like the process here. She's just like, hmm, I like your face. Give him many guns. She just kind of eyeballs it and is like, yeah, this guy seems trustworthy. Give him half a million francs and a lot of bullets. I, I met him one time in the depth of night in a sketchy spot in the French woods. He seems legit. Give him some bombs. <laughs> it's it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. I don't trust anyone who's not willing to meet me at midnight in the woods. I also just like that they're like, man, I want to get hold of this super secret lady. I'll just fire off an email to this <laughs> escaped convict I know, and he might be able to figure it out, and then they will flirt via radio waves, and we can rendezvous in the woods. This is all normal. This is fine. He must have felt like a right third wheel, though. It was, like, super awkward. <laughs> right? He's just like, He's like, should I go? <laughs> The next day after meeting Cologne and Antoine, Hall traveled 200 miles south to the village of Le Chambon sur Lignon on the Vivarey Plateau of the French department of Haute-Loire with orders to assess the local, local maquis and report back. After making contact with the leadership there, specifically former army reservist Pierre Fayol, she questioned them about their troops, their needs, and their willingness to follow orders should she be able to provide the means of enacting them. The men there had been fighting a massively superior foe with little to no outside supplies, but had had numerous successes harassing German troops, despite often brutal counterattacks. Hall likewise had them take her to scope out potential drop zones, for which they used a black Citroën, of the kind heavily favored by the Gestapo, modified with a souped-up engine and a windscreen that could be folded back to allow a clear shot through the front of the car. I just like that they're, like, scouting drop zones. Like, she's just driving around the woods being like, yes, this is a good clearing. I like this clearing. No, not this <laughs> Excellent clearing. Excellent clearing. I don't like it. Let's, let's name them all after fish. <laughs> At this point, like, the entire, like... It, military intelligence strategy in France is just things Virginia Hall eyeballs. Shit, like tons of authority, just based on looking at shit <laughs> in the French countryside. <laughs> yeah, she, and she also tended to name her drop site, she codenamed all her drop sites after fish. <laughs> so if, Her favorite was Bream. <laughs> she just really liked fish, I guess. Oh yeah, just a huge fan! <laughs> Seriously though, like your own enemies were trying to murder you, give you the amazing nickname Artemis, and then you're like, alright, my turn to name shit. Tuna. Trout. <laughs> Sensing opportunity, she gave them 150,000 francs and promised to return, heading north to collect her radio equipment, which she had left behind for safety. She reported to London that the Maquis had 200 well-led men, with, easily po with easy possibility of recruiting 300 more, and requested two officers, a radio operator, and a supply of arms. Back on the plateau, Hall set to arranging drops. Changing locations often, the better to avoid storks, radio detection planes used in the countryside, which could bring a swarm of German bombers should they detect illicit transmissions. She was mistrusted by many Maquis leaders, particularly Fayol, who had rather traditional notions of women, and as a patriot, largely distrusted Anglo-Saxons, 
seeing them as potential future invaders as much as potential liberators. He specifically disliked Americans, which is perhaps why Hall allowed the Maquis to believe she was English. <laughs> She's the most convenient ethnicity at the time. Is she Canadian? Is she English? Whatever <laughs> yeah. the fuck you're least angry with. Whatever nationality you hate least. <laughs> Even more so, the first drops were delayed, and with every day that passed before Hall delivered on the promised supplies, eroded her position. Regardless, Hall was able to integrate with a troop of Maquis, led by Raoul de Bolico, a wisecracking former sailor known as Lieutenant Bob. The young men in his com command, deeply impressed by Hall's willingness to endure the same hardships as them, began trading fanciful stories of how she might have lost her leg. <laughs> <laughs> the real story's super dumb, so anything they come up with, she should go with. They're like, she lost it doing mysterious things in the East. And she's like, sure, let's go with that. I definitely didn't shoot my foot off. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's go with ninjas. Yes, it was ninjas. Totally. <laughs> Not me forgetting to put the safety on. <laughs> It was Bob's men who acted as lookouts for storks while Hall made her transmissions. One young man, Edmund Le Bras, the son of her host, used to sit beside her, madly turning the pedals of a bicycle adapted to generate electricity in order to power her radio in the absence of any other connection. Another Maquis, Dede Zurbach, a young teacher whose mother and sister had been taken hostage by the Germans, became Hall's devoted assistant, courier, driver, and bodyguard, regardless of the occasional bad humors and hails of swearing caused by her heavy use of Benzedrine. Because she is just hopped up on amphetamines this entire I mean, time. <laughs> I mean, also her leg just bleeds if she exercises, so that's probably... You know, I'd be cranky. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even talk to me until I've staunched the blood. <laughs> <laughs> until then, yeah, don't even look at me. Finally, the BBC announcer used the signal phrase three times. Cette obscure clarité tombe des étoiles. Indicating that, the three R that three RAF drops would take place in just a few hours which the Maquis met with, an, with ox-drawn carts, led by Hull in an army jacket and khakis to collect over three tons of supplies, including quite a lot of guns and solidifying Hull's credibility. Eventually, there would be a total of 22 drops, and Hull became widely known as the Madonna of the Mountains for her miraculous ability to procure arms and explosives. While many of the Maquis factions refused to take her orders and even fought amongst themselves, especially the more nationalist followers of Charles de Gaulle and the communist-aligned partisans, Hall herself drew many recruits and eventually led 400 men, which she trained and formed into five companies. Fayol was especially opposed to taking her orders, wanting to follow solely the orders of Commander Gevold of the French Forces of the Interior a resistance faction that had formed itself into a semblance of a conventional army. Hall made an end run, run, run around Fayol, sending a message to Commandant Emile Terrand, FFI treasurer, under the name Nicholas, and when he re agreed to a meeting, offering, offered him financing in return for the FFI coordinating with Allied objectives to the tune of three million francs. Jessica has not converted that into baguettes for me, so I, I, I have no idea how much money that is, but it's a lot. 
It's it's either three dollars or so much money it's can't even be understood by the human mind. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only two alternatives. It's pocket change or enough to build a moon base. That's the only two amounts of money that there are. Those are the possibilities. Every time Jessica gets a paycheck, she's like, I'm either homeless or I'm building a Death Star. I don't know. I don't understand money. <laughs> How much is this in frog legs? I don't know. You're not that kind of French. No, I'm not. I can't I can't ask for how much it would be in beaver pelts. <laughs> like... <laughs> Canada stopped using that as our official currency at least twenty years ago. Yeah, we have we haven't gone by that since the since the beaver standard collapsed in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Hall's intelligence uncovered that the German general staff had moved its headquarters from Lyon to the nearby medieval town of Le Puy, and with the help of Commandant Terrand and the FFI, they would soon regret it, as roads, railroads, telephone, and power lines surrounding the Le Puy were systematically destroyed. The Haute-Loire-Maquis, acting as a highly organized guerrilla force, harassing German troops, sabotaging infrastructure, and disappearing into the night, minimized their own casualties. She's just running around the woods ordering munitions like it's Amazon with next day's shipping. Without phone lines, the Germans at Le Puy had no choice but to use easily intercepted wireless transmissions, which the insurgent French exploited so that it seemed that the resistance was everywhere. They likewise intercepted supplies from the outside, liberating food and fuel, leaving the German forces starving and under siege. On August 18th, a German column of 800 soldiers attempted to make a break for it, abandoning Le Puy, only to find themselves surrounded and cut off from reinforcements through some strategically exploded roads. <laughs> I hate it when that happens, when the roads are strategically exploded. <laughs> Resistance forces killed 150 and took 500 prisoners then turned on the Lupui garrison, where they took another 1,000 captives. By August 22nd, the regional German commander had surrendered. Indeed, the Haute-Loire, deep in the heart of southern France, was freed by the French themselves two days before the invading Allied forces reached Paris on the 24th. And, in early September, Hull finally received her OSS officer backup and radio operator. Oh, that was prompt. <laughs> well after they would have been truly useful. <laughs> the men themselves seemed rather surprised upon landing to find the area already liberated, though not as surprised as one of the agents who parachuted in was to land kilt first on a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to liberate you, starting with me. <laughs> Get me down from here. <laughs> uh, another two lieutenants likewise landed in the trees and had to make their way on foot to Le Chambon. Of the two, Henry Riley was a charming, highly trained Princeton graduate, and the other, Paul Goyot, was a five-foot-two chain smoker born poor in Paris and raised in New York. And now, I want you to guess which one Hall eventually married. The weirdest one. Absolutely! <laughs> <laughs> Apparently she found Paul Goyot very charming and used to compare him to a bantam rooster. 
<laughs> she fuck? was a full six inches taller and significantly older. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, hey, do you want to marry a charming, handsome man your own age or a geriatric murder clown? She's like, yes, definitely the geriatric murder clown. Uh, I will take the clown. The clown, please. <laughs> <laughs> She's just... In any given situation, she picked the weirdest thing available to her, and it always works out? Yeah, yeah. Like, they were together for the rest of their lives. They were oh. deeply in love. <laughs> oh, I, I... I mean, I, I guess it... Apparently he made her laugh. Um... <laughs> She's, she's got low criteria after spending, like... He was also a decent cook. ...the bulk of her adult life on the run from being murdered. Yeah. Apparently she needed a little levity. <laughs> You'll do. Just crack some jokes, honey. I like how you're tiny and unthreatening. <laughs> the amount of cigarettes you stuff in your face will keep you from being able to run too fast. I can best you in physical combat. Let's do this, funny man. <laughs> on September 7th, Hall received permission to take her own men and press on liberating other areas. Hall, relieved to be free of the FFI's squabbling and post-liberation politics, collected a commando squad of 19 volunteers and alongside Riley and Goyot, set out on September 11th, following the retreating Germans in a convoy of cars until on the 19th, the Allied forces, advancing faster than expected, caught up with them, and their little band of irregulars was disbanded. Though Hall continued missions in Europe for the OSS right until the German surrender. I just like that they're following behind the retreating German troops. I just like to imagine they're just like, losers! Like, just throwing ah! empty beer cans at them. Just like, get out of here. Go on. Go Shoot. on, run! <laughs> Finally, Hall returned to Lyon where she met with, with survivors such as Risset and Guerin, and heard news of those who had lived and those who, like her nephews, had died. She did what she could to repay them, in particular acquiring a promise of 80,000 francs and a commendation from the British government for the now-impoverished Guerin. Aww. Robert Elesh, the double agent known as Bishop, eventually left hiding and submitted himself to the Americans with the hope of trading intel for clemency. But the Americans, knowing full well the extent of his crimes, handed him over to the French justice system, where he eventually was found guilty and sentenced to death, commuted to life in prison. Oops. Whoops. Yeah, like, and this is during the same era as Operation Paperclip. Like, Klaus Barbie? He gets a free pass after this. <laughs> oh, you're free to go. That's fine. Yeah, we'll let the torturer go. But yeah, you stole a prostitute's coats. <laughs> you know. Criminal justice. It's wrong in its own way. Hall received various honors, including the French Croix de Guerre, the most excellent order of the British Empire, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, though she demurred public recognition, preferring only private acknowledgement, as she had done it all not for commendation, but for love of France. <laughs> Interestingly, her main rival in the resistance, Fayol, spent a great deal of time after the war researching her life and advocating for her to receive the cross of the French Legion of Honor. Yeah, it seems kind of insulting that they didn't. 
Oh, like, the uh, the main reason why it failed was uh, because directly after the World War, like, there was a strong nationalist sentiment, especially brought in by de Gaulle. So, like, they very much wanted to emphasize the sort of mythos of, you know, the French having freed themselves without external help. Ah, which, like, lies. Yes and lies. no. <laughs> they very much wanted comforting, comforting lies. <laughs> so they were just sort of like, so long and thanks for all the fish. And by fish, I mean, like, liberty and risking your life. Military aid and much, much blood and treasure. You only, like, allowed thousands of your young men to die on our shores, <laughs> but no biggie. You know, you're doing us a solid, don't bring it up. Honestly, though, history has shown us that if if France is having a weird nationalist phase, it's probably best to just leave the country. Yeah, just, just, just don't ask, don't make eye contact. <laughs> Uh, another major reason why she wasn't given the uh, the 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 Legion of Honor uh, was because it so much of what she did was heavily classified, and by the time Fayol had uncovered most of her activities, uh, she had already died, and the uh, the award cannot be given posthumously. Ah, so she got Alan Turing out of recognition. Absolutely. <laughs> She is like inconveniently dead. We're only we're, it's only recently that people like Alan Turing and Virginia Hall have come to light for this exact reason. Those files oh. were buried Very deep classified. in some filing cabinets. Janelle and I actually discussed we we discussed doing this case, like this particular topic, for a ages while. Ages ago. E ages ago. This was probably at least a year ago. Yeah, at least a year. But the thing is, like, there were no books in English. There was, like, one in Fran French, another, there was, like, a children's book, and otherwise, most of the major books about her in English were written this year. They were published. Like, the one I'm, a lot, a lot of the data I'm going off of uh, is, was published in October. <laughs> yeah, we don't like to bring an episode forward if we're getting most of our information off of list verse. It, it's a bit of a problem when all of the sources you're able to find are citing each other. <laughs> yeah, we needed a book. We needed there to be. <laughs> Post-World War II, Hall returned to the United States to live with Goyot, who her mother d disapproved of. And as a compromise, uh, they didn't legally acknowledge the relationship until a small ceremony in 1957. Um... <laughs> It's a Which weird is, compromise. Yeah, like, uh, oh, you don't approve of my boyfriend? Well, I guess we'll just live in sin for the next several years. <laughs> Until we have a small hand-fasting ceremony in the woods under cover of darkness. <laughs> uh, Goyot entered the restaurant business, but Hall struggled in the private sector due in part to her disability, in part due to due to her gender, and in part due to the fact that it's hard to talk about your employment experience in an interview when a large portion of it is classified. Uh, I just like that she managed to hike 8,000 mile ascent through the mountains with radio gear, and then she's like, waitressing. Difficult. Cannot. <laughs> Like, funnily, all of your references are a disconnected number. That weird. <laughs> yeah, everyone who could provide me with a reference has been shot 
deported or executed. <laughs> oh boy. Here's your fucking entrees. Uh, nonetheless, a hall joined the CIA as one of its first female agents. <laughs> she couldn't she couldn't hack it in a restaurant, so she just joined the CIA. Basically, yeah. Like Denny's wouldn't take her, so the American Intelligence Agency was uh Yeah, she wasn't good enough for the private sector, you know, couldn't get any clerical work there, so she went back to fucking espionage. (laughs) Solid fallback plan. Clearly one of her top marketable skills. It's either this or paramilitary juntas in South South America, so... (laughs) You know. And I I don't think... I don't think Goyo would have been into it. He, I think he wanted the quiet life, you know, <laughs> being French and smoking. <laughs> I, I think illegally assassinating Nazis and committing extrajudicial extra murders in South America doesn't have a great pension plan. No, not exactly. Besides, she's following the, uh, the Janelle Como path to success, i.e. living on the American East Coast and, and living in sin with a Frenchman. <laughs> I was like, wait, what is the Janelle Como secret to success? But yeah, that's that's working for me right now. That is basically it. <laughs> <laughs> Living in sense specifically with a tiny Frenchman. <laughs> Fail upwards, trick people, find a Frenchman. <laughs> uh, at the CIA, Hall had a career of mixed success, eventually rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, though her advancement was heavily stunted by both covert and overt sexism, and the impression that her attention to detail and careful preparation meant that she was overly cautious in the fevered fight against communism. She literally Uh, smuggled herself into France with nothing but an elderly painter, even after she'd been told explicitly not to go into France because it was suicide, and they're like, nah, she's too cautious for this work. Apparently the McCarthy-era CIA found her a little bit staid and recalcitrant. (laughs) They thought she was unprepared for the rush into battle. (laughs) (laughs) She's but a mere woman. She rushes only to the kitchen. Yeah. Notably, the almost parodical failure of the CIA-planned Bay of Pigs invasion was not one of hers. Also, at this uh, point, she's gotta be pushing 60 with a wooden leg. Oh, like, yeah. How? Yeah. She's, like, she's in her 50s. She has health issues due to benzedrine overuse. She always preferred frontline work uh, to behind-the-desk de- de- analysis, but she, she's gonna, you're gonna find yourself behind a desk with that combination. Prosthetic limbs, particularly of the kind with which of of the early 20th century, did not age well. Right? All it takes is, like, an uneven set of stairs to just end her shit. Never mind the Pyrenees, she might get taken out walking the steps on the way to the lunchroom. Right? And they're concerned that, like, her files are in alphabetical order, so it means she's a bad spy? Come on. Yeah, and, like, specifically getting after her for being overly cautious. <laughs> yeah, like, she she did end up taking mandatory retirement at the age of 60. Uh, generally speaking, most people in her position with her level of experience would have been offered the chance to stay on as a trainer 
but she did, does not appear to have been offered the same, uh, the same. Uh, Hall Rude. and Goyo never had children, instead throwing extravagant parties, doting on Hall's niece, Lo- niece Lorna, and collecting poodles. Well, that sounds like a uh, good life to me. Time to shoot my foot off and spy for France. I- I'm down. <laughs> Hall died on July 8th, 1982, at the age of 76 of unrecorded causes. So, probably storming a beach or something. <laughs> Did she just, like, backflip off of her building, both middle fingers to the air? Like, she was, she, I'm genuine, like, they tell me she, she died in, like, Shady Grove Retirement Home or whatever, but nah. I'm pretty sure she was hunting Nazis in Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> she just, like, disappeared into the jungles. Yeah, they say she's still there to this day. She would only be, what? She was she was born on in 1906, so <laughs> she's very old. Ten, <laughs> yeah, 113. She's 113, still, uh, <laughs> st- still hunting the Nazis, like the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> she was half bionic, you know. Yeah, they they said it was made out of wood. Maybe she got an upgrade. Got a prosthetic heart while she was The CIA was had access to a lot of strange technology <laughs> in the 50s. Excellent. In any case, uh, that has been Virginia Hall. Yeah, a little bit. I'm about to go... Kind of want to be her. Start hopping fences with a gun with the safety off and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, maybe that's the, exactly the kind of inspiration I need to really get really get me going in the, in the public service. <laughs> I'm already a bureaucrat. The next step is just a major worldwide conflict and, uh, and, uh, and dyeing my hair. Yeah, I mean, I feel inspired as fuck to, like, forge official government documents, sneak myself over a foreign border into an active war zone, and start talking on the radio. I'm, I'm pumped. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I have been Jessica. And I am Janelle. And we are Fat, Fat French, French, and, and Fabulous. fabulous.